And after these things, Jesus was going about in Galilee, for he did not desire to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Depart from here, and go away to Judea, so that your disciples may behold the works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret who also seeks to be in the open. If you do these things, reveal yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Therefore Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world's not able to hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that the world's works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast, because my time has not yet been fulfilled. And after saying these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but rather as in secret. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord God, how desperately we need you. We sing this song, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed feed me till I want no more. And... um, Lord, we do confess at times in our walk with you, your nearness, your goodness, your mercy, your kindness, your compassion, your grace, your love feels so overwhelming that we're not sure that we could handle experiencing any more of it. And yet it leaves us hungry and thirsty for more. So, Lord, even this morning, we find ourselves hungry and thirsty for more of your grace, more of your kindness, of your mercy, your compassion, your love for us. And, Lord, we know that you have put that on display in the life and ministry, the death, the resurrection, the current intercession, and the eventual coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, we thank you for how you have exalted your goodness to us through the life and ministry of your Son. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would pour out upon us, or at least fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit this morning, so that we might truly see the goodness of God revealed in your life. We might see your kindness towards us, your mercy towards sinners, that you came into the world to save sinners. Even if we can say with Paul, we are chief among them. You still came to set an example, even through Paul, that you are a kind and merciful Savior to all who come to you. So, Lord, please help us come to you this morning. Whether we are believers in this room or whether we are unbelievers, whether we know that we are believers or not, or whether we know that we are unbelievers or not, God, may we receive the call all the same to come to your Son, Lord Jesus, to come to you, that we might find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. So bless us now as we come to your word. Please open it up to us. Give us eyes to see wondrous things out of your law. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Amen. All right, so we ended last week in John chapter 6. And I want to pick up on something that we left lingering there at the end of the message before we move into chapter 7 this morning. At the end of John chapter 6, we saw the vast majority of those who were considered to be Jesus' disciples departing and choosing to follow him no longer. So this this great expression of apostasy at the end of John chapter 6, and uh, by the way, there's something relating to this that I have not addressed in the sermon, but I'm going to do it in a blog post. It'll probably even be the newsletter article for this next month. Uh, one, of the, one of the commentators I read, Andreas Kostenberger, or Kostenberger, or Kustenberger, however you say the O with the two dots above it, um, he said at the end, in, his, in his, many of his works on this uh, Gospel of John, he said at the end of, of chapter 6, 
that the, the chapter ends on a note of failure. And I revolt against that statement with all of my heart. This is not a note of failure at the end of John chapter 6. This is success. Jesus has called the herd. He has weeded out those who were not true believers, and he has boiled down his followers to those who are genuine. What, what could be more successful than that? That's, that's, the whole, that's the whole ambition and emphasis behind the Puritan movement. Despite what you were told in, in school about how Puritanism is, is evil and wretched and oppressive. It's like, no, that's not the case at all. They were, but they were after the purification of the church, and that would feel oppressive to those who are ungodly. To those who don't truly love the Lord, of course that feels oppressive. But anyway, I'm getting into the article, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to address that in the sermon, but I, I do want you to know this, this chapter does not end on a note of failure. Jesus purposefully speaks in such a way as to drive away those who are not genuinely following him. And he's left with, with 12. Now, that, now the, the 12 issue is, is the thing that we really need to address before we move on. As I said, at the end of last week's message, we were left with, with an issue that was lingering, which is, what to do with Judas Iscariot. In verse 70, after the disciples confess their faith in Jesus, Jesus says to them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And we looked at maybe some of the reasons why Jesus does that. You know, there was, there was possibly communicated in verse 69 some confidence or uh, self-reliance that was uh, expressed in Peter's comment, Lord, we have come to know and have come to believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The tense in Greek is the active tense. For those of you who read Greek and know Greek, you understand what I mean by that. For those of you who don't, it simply means that the, the subject is the one doing the action. Okay, so when Peter says, we have come to know and we have believed, He's saying, we have achieved this. We've done this. We've figured it out. We made our decision. We've chosen to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus turns around with his comment, and he wants to put them in their proper place and say, no, you believe in me, and you've come to know the truth about me, not because you figured it out, but because I chose you. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And uh, we went over some of the reasons, maybe why they needed to focus on that, to remove every issue of self-reliance from their minds, especially as they were going to be moving forward with Jesus, not only in discipleship, but then as uh, in their apostolic ministry. They needed to understand that it wasn't them holding on to Jesus with all their might that was going to get them through. It was Jesus holding on to them from beginning to end. That's what was going to get them through. That's what was going to empower them in ministry in order to face difficult times and challenges and opposition and even be willing to lay their own lives down in service to Christ. It wasn't going to be confidence in their ability to know and understand the will of God or to hold fast to Jesus. It was going to be their assurance that Jesus Christ was holding fast to them. It's the same for us. Right? But we won't go into that application as much as I might want to right now, but it's the same for you. Your confidence to live for the, your bold, yeah, now we're going into it. Your boldness to live for the Lord comes from greater assurance of understanding the reality of His grace towards you. God wasn't sitting back passive. If you are a Christian in this room, God wasn't sitting back passively on His throne waiting for you to make your decision. Waiting for you to put Him into the game of your life so that He could get things fixed and in order for you. No, that's not how it works. If you are a believer in Christ in this room, it's because Jesus Christ drew near to you as a shepherd seeking after his lost sheep. And he brought you back into the fold by his own sovereign power and by his own grace. And that ought to give you great comfort and assurance. If, if he loved me then, does he not love me now? If he was faithful to me then, 
and all the ungodliness and all the wretched sin that I took pleasure in and all the ways I was living contrary to the will of God, if Jesus would draw near to me then and pluck me up out of it and bring me out of the cesspool of my own ungodliness and unite me to the fold of His sheep, if He did it then, then will He not continue being faithful and loving towards me now? They needed to rest assured in that. But that leaves us with an issue. It leaves us with a problem. Verse 70, when Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one from among you is a devil? What does that mean? We understand what it would mean for the eleven of the twelve, I chose you, the 12. We understand what it might mean for the 11, but what does it mean for that 12th disciple that Jesus identifies as a devil? He says clearly that one of the 12 whom he had chosen was a devil. A devil simply means slanderer or, or an evil accuser, uh, basically an enemy, right? So here Jesus is emphasizing the fact that even among these 12 disciples who are remaining... Right, Because the initial crowd was like anywhere between five and 15 to 20,000 people. And now there are 12 left around Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says, Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet among you there is one who is a slanderer. There is one who is a devil. Now that brings the question to mind, what did it mean for Jesus to choose one who is a devil? Some take this to mean that this indicates that election is for service or for ministry, not for salvation. Because here Judas was chosen among the twelve who were going to have an apostolic ministry. Therefore, election, which the word from which we get election is used here when Jesus says, did I not choose you? Um, I won't, never mind, it won't do any good for me to say the word to you. Um, Did I not choose you? Here, they would say, well, this is talking about Jesus choosing them for ministry. Others might say that, yes, Jesus chose Judas in the same way that he chose the rest of the twelve. However, what this proves is that election or being chosen is something that can be resisted or refused. Right? So Jesus chose all of the twelve, but one of them decided that they didn't want to be chosen. So they chose against being chosen. Right? So, like, so Jesus chose Judas, but Judas didn't choose Jesus. So Jesus' choice doesn't matter because Judas won. Right? Some people believe that that's what this is teaching. But that's not the point that Jesus is making in this verse, is it? What is the point that Jesus is trying to emphasize? What is he getting at whenever he says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Well, I think we can say a couple of things about that. First of all, he's making clear that he was not taken by surprise or ignorant of the fact that one among the twelve still was not a believer. Right? This is uh, verse 64, right? that he knew from the beginning those who were believers and those who weren't, and he knew the one who was going to betray him. He knew that from the very beginning. He wasn't taken by surprise. Uh, in relation to that, and he's making that very clear here, that even though 12 are left, he knows that one among, them, uh, one among them is not a true believer and would eventually betray him. But I think there's a, second, uh, there's a second thing we can say about this that really gets to the heart of the matter. What was the point that Jesus was making? Well, in verse 70, Jesus is explaining why the 12 did not depart from him when all the other people did. That's what he's explaining to them. Why is it that the twelve did not depart from him when everybody else did? What explains that? And particularly, what explains that in relation to someone who is not a believer? 
Right? The eleven remained because they were truly convinced of who Jesus was. They truly knew the power of His Word. They had experienced the life-giving power of the Spirit through the teaching of Jesus. They knew who Jesus was, and they were going to follow Him come hell or high water, come death and martyrdom. They were following Jesus because they realized the truth about Him. But that's not the case with Judas. Judas didn't have that conviction. He didn't know the truth about Jesus. So what kept Judas with the rest of the twelve while all the other unbelievers departed? Well, Jesus' answer to that is Judas was chosen. That's what kept him around. What kept Judas Iscariot from walking away with all the others was the simple fact that Jesus had chosen Judas for a specific purpose And Judas wasn't going to go anywhere until that purpose was fulfilled. You know, this is is actually a really difficult matter to discuss and to work through, so much so that in all my commentaries that I have, I did not come across anyone who was willing to venture into this topic in relation to Judas. And so I'm feeling a little trepidation here. I don't want to state things too strongly. Where other godly men before me have gone uh, softly, I want to tread softly as well. Um, But this is a really difficult matter. Uh, Not because it's hard to understand what Jesus is saying, but because it's hard to take in what he's saying here. In John 17, verse 12, we're told that Judas was chosen in order to be the son of destruction, the son of perdition. And it says there in that verse, I meant to have that slide, I'm sorry, but it says in that verse that Judas was chosen to be the son of destruction so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In other words, Judas wasn't going anywhere and Jesus wasn't going to let Judas go anywhere until Judas fulfilled the purpose for which God had chosen him. So it's true, Judas was chosen by Christ just as much as the other apostles were, but he was not chosen for the same reason, and he was not chosen for the same purpose. Okay? Now, Judas was chosen by God to be the man through whom the Christ would be betrayed, and the salvation of God's chosen people would be secured. That's a very weighty reality. Let me ask a couple questions in relation to that. I don't mean to linger too long on this, but it's important. Was that fair to Judas? Was it fair to Judas for Judas to be chosen to be the son of perdition? Or maybe, I mean, Jesus even says it so strongly that woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man never to have been born. Jesus says that. Wow. Right? Could Judas have chosen not to be the son of perdition? I mean, was, were the, was the fulfillment of Scripture in relation to the Messiah being betrayed and laying his life down for the salvation of his people. Everything that the Father had declared and prophesied about what the Messiah would do through his suffering in the Old Testament was all of that dependent upon Judas Iscariot being willing to be the son of perdition. You better hope not. If something that monumental is dependent upon one man's will, to comply with Almighty God, then you are never going to be saved. Period. But let's think about that. Did Judas have a choice in this matter? was Was it really up to him as to whether or not he wanted to be the son of destruction? So like at the beginning, when Jesus called Judas Iscariot, did Jesus sit him down and explain specifically what role he had in mind for Judas? And then say, Judas, now this is what it means to be the son of perdition, and this is what I think you would be really good at. 
You'd be a great son of perdition. This is what it means. This is what it entails. And at the end of all of this, you are going to be the most cursed man in hell. Are you willing to do that? And Judas, with this good, humble nature, looks back at the Messiah and says, Lord, if that's what you need me to do, then that's exactly what I'm willing to do. I'll do that for you. Is that how it happened? Of course not. Of course not. That's not what happened. He was chosen by God and chosen by Christ for that specific purpose. Now, to answer the question, was that unfair or that, was that unjust? Well, as it says in verse 70, that was definitely not unfair and not unjust because of what Judas already was. What is Judas when Jesus utters these words? It says, one of you is a devil. It doesn't say one of you will become a devil. It says one of you is a devil. Right, and we, we learn about that from the rest of the, the gospel account. And even, even in John, whereas in, in John chapter 12, verse 6, we're told about Judas being a thief, right? He would help himself to the common purse of the apostles and just steal money out of that purse. He was greedy. Uh, we learn from John 13, verse 2, that Satan actually had sway over his heart. Right, so this is uh, Ephesians chapter 2, that the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, everyone who is an unbeliever is subject to the influential power of the devil. And what we learn about Judas in John chapter 13 verse 2 is that Satan had sway over his heart. Satan had put into the heart of Judas the idea of betraying the Messiah. And when Satan uttered those words into Judas's ears, for some reason, there was a heart that was prepared and ready to adopt that idea and move forward with the plan. Now, to be in cahoots with Satan, what kind of person must you be? You're definitely not a good person. And then you see in Luke 22, verse 3, that Satan actually had authority over him when he entered into his heart and led him away to betray the Son of Man. And so God didn't make Judas a devil. That's what Judas already was. God simply chose to use an evil man in order to bring freedom and salvation to his elect people, at least to be one of the means by which that salvation would be accomplished. So yes, even Judas was chosen according to election, but he was chosen for a much different purpose and unto a much different end than the others. Now, just as we button up that issue, does God have the right to do that? Was it fair for, Judah, for, for that to happen to Judas? Yes, it was, because Judas was an evil man. Just like Pharaoh, right, in Egypt, when God used raised up Pharaoh in order to exalt his power and to make his name known throughout Egypt by judging Pharaoh... In the same way, he raised up Judas here to make his power and his glory known through the salvation of sinners and using Judas, an evil man, to do an evil deed by which life would come to his chosen people. Now, does God have the right to do that? Yes, he does. Romans chapter 9, he has the right over the clay to make from the same lump both vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor. That's the sovereignty of God. That is his almighty right and authority and power. And that is the God who created us, the God with whom we have to give an account. Now, the fallen human heart hates the, that reality of God, God's sovereignty. There's nothing more terrifying to him or her than that reality because what that means is, is that God is not in our control. Right? God's not under our sway. He's not, be, he's not able to be manipulated by us. He is actually the one who is sovereign over us, and He sovereignly determines what He is going to do with us, and we are subject to His will. He's not subject to ours. There's nothing that the fallen human heart hates more than that. The autonomous human heart that, that loves self-rule over and against the rule of God. We hate that, but that is the God who created us, and that is the God who is so clearly put on display here in choosing Judas for this this end and this purpose. Now, there's much more that I wanted to say about that, but if you have any more questions, please feel free to come ask me after service or email me or call me. 
text me. Texting is really good. Um, just let me know, and I'll be happy to get back to you as soon as I can. All right. All right. Now, moving into chapter 7. For the rest of today, uh, we're going to focus on some background information to this situation that begins to develop in chapter 7, which means we're really only going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 7. Um, I wanted to move all the way through verse 10, thought I could do that until Friday afternoon, and realized I can't do that. <laughs> so just too much to look at. Uh, so what we're going to do today is uh, look at some background information that will set us up to approach the entirety of chapters 7 and 8 with the right understanding and coming from, from a right perspective. All right, so, so there are six things that we want to notice, six introductory matters that we want to look at here from John chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. So just take that outline and you just scribble out number one and number two and you just write one to six and fill them in as we go, okay? All right, so some background information. Number one, as we move into John chapter seven, we are coming into a new segment or a new unit in the gospel of John. And we see that right in verse one where John writes, and after these things... After these things. That, that's a phrase that occurs multiple times in the Gospel of John, and it's signaling to the reader the fact that we are that John is introducing a new theme, or there's there's some new development that is that is taking place that's really significant that we need to focus on. Now, just as uh, by way of reminder, we are in the middle of the first half of the Gospel of John, which runs from uh, chapters two to chapters chapter 12, chapter 2 to 12. And um, we're in chapter 7, obviously, but this first half of John is called the Book of Signs. And does anybody remember why it's called the Book of Signs? Do you remember this from a year and almost two years ago? Why is it called a Book of Signs? Yeah, because, who said that? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Because Jesus performed signs. And there are seven specific signs that are focused on from chapters 2 to, chapters two to 12, right? So we've seen in chapter 2 uh, the one sign at the wedding of, in Cana. We've seen the second sign, which was the clearing of the temple. We've seen uh, the third sign, which was the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4. We've seen at the beginning of chapter 5 the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And then uh, we've seen the fifth sign in chapter 6, what we just finished up with, the feeding of the 5,000 or more. Now then the next miracle that we're going to see doesn't come until chapter 9. So if chapter 6 is uh, miracle of sign number 5, chapter 9 opens with sign number 6. And that is the healing of the blind man. And then we have the uh, seventh and final sign that John focuses on in John chapter 11, which is raising Lazarus from the dead. All right, so we're in that, we're in that segment in between the fifth and the sixth sign that is preparing us to understand the developments that are going to be taking place in the rest of the gospel. Okay? It's really important to note this. I, I, there's, a, there's a lot to go into here. Try not to bore you with too much of it, but we're in this segment where Jesus is interacting with the Jews in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. It runs from chapter 7, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 59. All of this takes place in Jerusalem at the same Feast of Tabernacles, and it's focusing our attention on the effect that Jesus' ministry was having on the Jewish people in Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, and it tra it's transitioning us uh, to um, see these developments that are going to take place from that point forward. So we're in that segment in between sign number five and sign number six. Now that leads, just, leads us to a second introductory matter, which is uh, we're not only entering into a new segment in the Gospel of John, but it's also introducing us to a new theme in the Gospel of John. There's a new theme that begins to develop beginning in chapter 7, which surprisingly is the theme of Jesus hiding himself. 
Jesus hiding himself or withdrawing from people in Jerusalem. In chapters 1 to 6, Jesus has been continuing to disclose and reveal himself to the Jews. He's been very open about who he is and what he came to do. And yet here in John chapter 7, verse 1, we begin to see Jesus pulling back from those to whom he was being very open with prior to this. Go to John chapter 5, he was being extremely open with the Jews about who he was and what it meant for him to be the Son of God. Well, here in John chapter 7, verse 1, he starts pulling it back. And we see this uh, progress throughout the rest of this first half of the gospel. So, for example, in John 8, 59, we see Jesus hiding himself from those who want to kill him, right at the end of this segment. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 39 and 40, we see Jesus withdrawing himself from these same Jewish leaders. We see, and then finally in uh, chapter 12, verse 36, we see Jesus making a statement to walk in the light while they have the light, and then hiding himself from them, withdrawing from them. So that's a new theme that's developing in the Gospel of John. And it's almost like the dissipating of the sunlight in the afternoon of the day. Right, so you've had Jesus reach a climax in his earthly ministry where he has put on display for everyone in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Galilee the reality and the truthfulness of who he is. He's, he's not only shown them by way of miracles, but he's also explained to them in his teaching who he is and what he came to do. So the light was shining brightly. And yet as that light began to shine brighter and brighter, what did we notice in chapter 6? What happened to the people? They began to react more sharply against that light, didn't they? Jesus dials up the light and shines it bright, more brightly upon them. And what happens to the hearts of those who were not being called by grace to be saved in the Son of God? They began to react sharply against it. They were, they were antagonistic, more and more antagonistic to that light. Until we reach this point where Jesus is beginning to withdraw the light of his grace from them because they're rejecting it. That's why he says in John 12, 35 and 36, a little while longer the light is with you. So the light's going away is what he's preparing them for. So walk while you have the light so that darkness does not overtake you. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So the time for the light to be among them was coming to a close which is signaled to them by the fact that Jesus progressively hid himself from them and progressively withdrew from the Jews or was withdrawing from them. Now that brings us to a third introductory matter to consider, which is the increasing hostility against Jesus. So we're entering into a new segment. We're noticing the development of a new theme And now we see in this section increasing hostility against Christ. This is actually one of the main reasons Jesus was withdrawing from them, as we're told in verse 1. After these things Jesus was going about in Galilee, he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now this is nothing new. This hostility from the Jewish leadership is nothing new. We've uh, seen it. Um, all the way back to chapter 2. Um, and let, oh, by the way, let me just point out something here. Uh, when, it, when it says in verse 1 that the Jews were seeking to kill him, we're pretty certain that that's talking about the Jewish leadership, not the normal run-of-the-mill Jewish person uh, worshiping in Jerusalem. And we can gather that from looking, for example, at verses 12 and 13 where you have these two different groups. One of them is described as the people who were complaining among themselves about who Jesus is, uh, but they were afraid to speak openly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. So you have a, a, a distinction there between two different groups of people. You've got the people in Jerusalem talking about Jesus, the normal people, and then you have the Jews, which is, again, taken to be the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. Now, their animosity, their hostility against Christ is nothing new. That animosity of the religious leaders against Jesus began back in John chapter 2 when Jesus cleared the temple in Jerusalem of them selling merchandise by making a whip of cords. 
right? And that was a fun scene to walk through together uh, on, on, on that Sunday morning. The leaders came to Jesus and asked him, by what authority do you do this? Well, and the reason why they came up to him asking for his authority was because the act of driving out the money changers and the, the, uh, the vendors from the temple was a, was a direct confrontation with the authority of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem at that time. So Jesus was directly confronting the authority by which those vendors were set up in the temple. And so they come to Jesus and they say, by whose authority are, are you driving these people out? Because it was by our authority that they were put there. So Jesus was directly confronting them. And so at that time, just in that whole scene, we noticed that the worship of the Jews at that time had been reduced to a type of formalism and religious, uh, religious ritual, uh, a kind of worship that had been gutted of true love for God and sincere, heartfelt worship of His holy name. It was ritualism. It was empty act, empty acts of devotion, which happened to them. It can happen just as easily to us. We can sing these great songs. We can offer up prayers. We can hear the preaching of the Word. And we can do all of it with cold and indifferent hearts towards the Lord. And that means none of it's acceptable. Well, the religious leaders had emphasized a ritualistic form of worship in place of the true heartfelt worship that God requires in the worship of His name. And even worse, they had turned this into a, a system of opportunity to make money off of the worship of God's people. And I despise the reality that people still today seek opportunity to make money off of the worship of God's people. Christian artists who sell the right to use their music in the worship service of God. Are you kidding me? If you didn't pay me to get up here and preach these sermons, I would still feel compelled and urged by God to preach His Word to you free of cost. If you want to test me on that, go ahead. Withdraw my salary. Just don't expect so much time to be devoted to shepherding you, okay? I'm not joking. I don't, I don't charge you. I don't charge based on the number of people that come into this room. I, I don't charge you an extra fee to hear my sermons. I don't copyright my sermons when we post them online and, and charge a fee for people to access them. Why do we think it's right for, for Christian music artists to sell their music to the church to be used in the worship of God on Sunday morning? Well, why does that even enter into our brains as something that is appropriate? If they want to make money, they want to make money on Christian radio and whatnot out in the world. They want to sell their records. They're welcome to do that. They can make money that way. But what gives them to the right? What, why do we adopt something as audacious as saying, if you want to worship God with my music, you give me money for it because that's my royalty? That's exactly right. Man, listen, I'm not trying to be unfair to people, but, but it's the same spirit that's manifesting right there in John chapter 2, isn't it? Turning, uh, John 2.16, turning the Father's house into a place of merchandise, a place where you can sell something and make money off the worship of God. Well, they need the music, don't they? You know, why don't we, if we want new music, why don't we just start writing our own music? Wouldn't that be great? We don't need to pay copyright fees or, or, or royalties to anybody else. We can just write our own stuff and we can use our own stuff. We can go back to those good songs that, were, that, are, that are public domain songs, the ones we don't have to pay to use. And we can write new music for ourselves. Nothing's stopping us from doing that. Anyway, that's a hot... I'm sorry. Sure. These people in John chapter 2, they needed animals for sacrifice. They needed pure money. They needed to exchange their money for pure money that was acceptable in temple worship. Yes, they needed all of that. They did. But this system had been constructed around that worship that allowed the vendors and suppliers of those sacrifices and the money changers themselves to make a little profit off of the people's worship. 
And Jesus was sickened by it all. And so full of the zeal, full of zeal for the house of his father, and in disgust over the den of robbers that his father's house had become, Jesus sat down and began weaving together a whip of cords, premeditated. He didn't just find a whip of cords around and said, oh, I'm going to use that, and in a moment of rage, lash out against them. Pun intended. He sat down and he wove that whip of cords together. He thought about what he was doing. And in holy anger and just anger and wrath, he began overturning their tables and driving them out of his father's house, saying, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Well, that was the right thing to do, but it was also a direct challenge to the religious leadership in Jerusalem of that time who had authorized everything to be there that Jesus had driven out. And so that was the beginning of the hostility between Jesus and the Jews in Jerusalem. And I I think that's a common response of self-satisfied religious people. When the demands of true and heartfelt worship are pressed upon them and they're... uh, less than par, less than acceptable worship is challenged by that which the Lord actually demands. There there is a tendency for people to get offended by that. Well, and we see that develop as the Gospel of John went on, right? Remember in John chapter 5, verse 16 to 18, that, that anger and that confusion and that animosity towards Jesus begins to be flamed into an outright desire to kill him. Or in John 5.16, the, the Jews were persecuting Jesus in Jerusalem, as it says, because uh, they were seeking to kill him, because in their minds, Jesus was guilty of breaking, at least their understanding, of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And then adding to that, in verse 17, he made himself out to be equal with God, which verse 18 tells us made the Jews seek to kill him all the more. So this, this hostility and animosity of wanting to get rid of Jesus that we see at the opening of John chapter 7, it's nothing new. It's woven throughout this entire gospel. What is new is that the level of animosity is increasing. So, so now, their, now their, their, their confusion has turned to anger, has turned to, to a meditative, a premeditative desire to kill him. And we'll see that develop as the gospel goes forward. Now, just, just, just by way, we need to move. We need to move. We need to get moving. But just by way of application here, how does Jesus respond to that kind of animosity? How does he respond? Just say, just out loud say it. Whatever comes to your mind. He doesn't like it. That's definitely right. He doesn't like it. Who said that? Yeah, he does not like it. But what does he do? He withdraws from them. He withdraws from them. You know, I, you hear these prideful and arrogant atheists and skeptics challenging God, saying, well, if God's real, and if Christ is really the way, then why doesn't He just show Himself to us? Why doesn't He just prove Himself to us if He's real? Well, that's coming from a prideful heart that is hostile to Him. And we learn in Scripture that God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He draws near to those who sincerely draw near to Him, right? Now, we see that working itself out here in the way that Jesus is interacting with these Jews in John 7. He is withdrawing from them, allowing himself to be uh, seen as more of an enigma than he already was in their minds because he was withdrawing from them. Now, that leads to a fourth introductory matter we're going to look at here, which is that the way he responds to these Jews is the exact opposite way or is, is the exact opposite of the way that Jesus treats his disciples. So fourthly, it says that Jesus, it says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, Jesus was spending his time going about in Galilee. Now it's important to understand what Jesus was doing during that time in Galilee. Right? This, that one little phrase represents a year of Jesus' ministry. So he was going about in Galilee. Well, that was a full year packed into that one, 
one statement. What was Jesus doing during that year in Galilee? Well, he was withdrawing from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem who were hostile against him, but he was also drawing near into a more intimate setting with his true disciples. And what was he doing during that time? He was teaching them. He was preparing them for the ministry which which lay ahead. He He was preparing them to accept the reality of what was coming down the pipe. So just for instance, during that year of of what's called the Galilean ministry, that's what all the other Gospels really focus on. They they focus in on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's what we're talking about right here in John 7.1. He was going about in Galilee. What was Jesus doing with His disciples during that time? Well, in Galilee, that's when they saw awesome displays of Jesus' power most clearly put on display. So that's where they saw the healing of the sick, innumerable healings of the sick. That's where they saw the cleansing of the lepers. That's where they saw Jesus raising the dead. And that's where they saw him doing all of these things by the command of his voice. Or, this is also the time when they saw the greatest revelation of his inherent glory unveiled. Does anybody know what that was? Transfiguration. It's during that time of ministry that Jesus was transfigured before Peter and James and John. During that time of ministry, that's when Jesus gave them the clearest teaching about the nature of true discipleship. Not floating on flowery beds of ease into the coming kingdom of God. Not taking advantage and and gaining glory and prominence as being Jesus' right and left-hand people you know, gaining some kind of glory for themselves, but serving Christ and serving His kingdom and serving even the most lowly among them to the point of laying their lives down for the good of others. That's what was required for true discipleship. Taking up their crosses of self-denial and joining Christ on the path to eternal glory and fellowship with God, which was paved with suffering. Jesus said, that's the heart of true discipleship. And if you're not willing to pay that cost, you're not worthy to be my disciple. It's also the time when he instructed them about the two-stage entrance of the kingdom of God. Right? Because the disciples thought that when the kingdom of God came and the Messiah finally arrived, he was going to usher in this global, glorious kingdom of the Lord, doing away with all those nasty, disgusting, God-hating Gentile nations and exalting the nation of Israel over everybody, right? That's what they were waiting on. Jesus, come on, there are the Romans. We've already said you're the Messiah. Go deal with them. Now, Jesus says, right now is not that time. Right now is not the time for that manifestation of my kingdom. My kingdom comes in two stages. And this is where the parables that Jesus taught his disciples come in in, uh, are so important to understand. Right? Because that tells us those parables, specifically like Matthew chapter 13, those parables tell us that there's a stage of sowing for the kingdom. When the word of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom is going to be sown abroad throughout the whole world, and then one day that will give way to a stage of reaping, a stage of harvesting, the day of judgment. Or there's going to be, there's one stage of catching disciples, like catching them in, in, in uh, catching fish in a net, right? You take up all kinds of fish, and then Jesus says, you go and you sit on the, on the shore and you sort them out. Well, that's what the kingdom of, of God is like. It's like catching all kinds of people as disciples, and then on the day of judgment, sorting them out as to which ones are the good ones and which ones are the bad ones. Right, That there's, there's this intervening time when the message of the kingdom is sown abroad in the world and it, and it causes good wheat to grow up in the world. And yet at the same time, there are the tares of the enemy that are sown abroad in the kingdom of the Lord, which is the world. And they're going to dwell together until the day of judgment. It's really important to get that. Two stages of God's kingdom introduced through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. His disciples didn't get it. Very often, we don't get it. But Jesus has very clearly described that during that Galilean ministry. 
Now we need to, yeah, and to keep moving. This is also the time when he made known to them the most important part of his teaching during that Galilean ministry period, which was the fact that the Son of Man was going to be rejected by the religious leadership in Jerusalem and would be killed by them and on the third day would rise again from the dead. It's, it's then that Jesus began to make clear to them that we are going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. You remember how they initially re- responded to that. Matthew 16, what did, what did Peter say? Peter had just confessed Jesus to be the son of the living God. We know that you're the Christ. And Jesus says, okay, now you're ready to hear this next part which is the Son of Man's going to go to Jerusalem and be put to death, and he's going to be raised again from the dead. And Peter takes him aside and starts rebuking him. Right? Like that, that is such a, a contradiction there. You recognize he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and yet you think that you can rebuke him and correct his misunderstanding of theology? No, no, no. No, Lord, you didn't get that right. I I think something was lost whenever you came down from heaven and entered into the world. The Messiah is not supposed to die. Forbid that from ever happening to you, Lord. And Jesus responds saying, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of the world. So he had to correct that misunderstanding of who he was and what he came to do. And it was during that Galilean ministry period that Jesus focused the attention of his disciples on these kinds of realities. Now, just quickly and briefly, by way of application there, there's a valuable lesson in that for understanding what is most needful in order to live a faithful life of discipleship for Christ, isn't there? There's a lot in that illustration of Jesus withdrawing to this backwater, secluded place called Galilee with his disciples in order to teach them more about the truth of discipleship. I think that if you and I want to be prepared to serve Christ well, what do we most need? If the, if the disciples were going to be prepared to serve Christ well, what did they most need? They needed to be withdrawn with Jesus away from the chaos, away from the animosity, away from all the anger and the hatred and the, and the, um, um, the arguments that were going to be presented by the, by the Jewish leadership. What they needed was to be withdrawn with Jesus and to be alone with him. If you're going to be prepared for ministry, what do you most need? You need to be alone with Jesus. You need time alone with Christ, removed from busyness and hurry and pressure and demands. Right? And, and not time just to devote yourself to more reading of good books, more teasing out of the particulars of, of sound theology. Yes, we need that. You, you need to, to read the Scriptures so that you know them better with your mind. But that doesn't, just doing that doesn't necessarily mean that you are withdrawing from the things of the world in order to be alone with Christ. I, I, listen, this is my life. I do this all the time. And every single day I have to fight the temptation just to dig into theology for the sake of theology. Read my Bible for the sake of having a better understanding of the Bible rather than having an intimate, more, more pure and, and sound attachment to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you, if you want to be better prepared to serve the Lord with your giftings and the various callings that He has given to you, it starts with this. It starts with you withdrawing from the things of the world and the busyness and the hurry and the pressures and just going and being alone with Christ. Do you have time every day when you do that, when you get your mind and your heart right and reoriented before the Lord? You need that. You need that every day if you're going to serve the Lord well in the day that's ahead. Only He knows what's coming, and only He can prepare you to meet it. You need to be alone with Christ, right? Take time to be holy. Love that hymn. Second verse, take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus like Him thou shalt be. Thy friends in thy conduct His likeness shall see. The more time you spend alone with Jesus, being exposed to the reality of His glory, the more you're going to reflect that glory to everyone else around you. 
That's what you most need. Now, number five, a fifth introductory matter we need to consider is what John 7, verse 2 tells us, that this all takes place at what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was near. Now, this, the, everything that happens in chapter 7 and chapter 8 take place during this one feast. So this is introducing the next two chapters here. Now, this helps us uh, uh, develop a timeline for Jesus' ministry. Because of this little detail here at the beginning of chapter 7, we know that we have now moved into the final six months of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we know that because of the relationship between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of the Passover. So there are three times when the Feast of the Passover is mentioned in the Gospel of John. You've got one in chapter 2, you've got one in chapter 6, and then you've got one in, at the end of chapter 11. Right, so three different Passover feasts, and that's how we gauge how long the earthly ministry of Jesus actually was. It was about three years, maybe three and a half years. Right, so having the Feast of Tabernacles situated right in between the second Passover and the third Passover tells us that this is the last six months of Jesus' earthly ministry because Jesus is crucified at the last Passover, right? Now, we learn in Leviticus 23, verse 5, that it was the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar that the Passover was celebrated. And uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated in the seventh month, which was during the harvest time, which would coordinate with our, like, October time frame. So Passover was sometime in March and April, and that's why we celebrate uh, Resurrection Day, Easter time, during March and April, and it variates because it's using the lunar calendar, not the solar calendar. That's why it fluctuates that way. Well, it'd be about October that the Feast of Tabernacles would be celebrated. At, uh, that was, in fact, a really busy month, by the way, the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. Leviticus 23, verse 24, tells us that the Feast of Trumpets took place on the first day of that month, and that represented the, uh, the blowing of trumpets, represented the ingathering of God's people to the place where His glory dwelt among them, which was the city of Jerusalem. It was calling them in to come worship in the presence of the Lord. That was the Feast of Trumpets. Then you had next the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of the seventh month. That's a really significant day for the life of Israel, isn't it? Wasn't it? That's where the annual atonement was accomplished in the presence of the Lord by the high priest on behalf of all the people. This is what enabled them to continue living with God in the promised land and participating in His worship and using the temple and the tabernacles because it was all cleansed on, the day, of, on the, uh, the day of atonement. That happened on the tenth day of the seventh month. And then you have Leviticus 23-34, the Feast of Tabernacles taking place on the fifteenth day of the month, which lasted for seven days and was uh, culminated. The culmination of that feast was an eighth day Sabbath. Eighth-day Sabbath. You, you should uh, draw a connection there between the eighth-day Sabbath and the day of Christ's resurrection on the eighth day. And the fact that the early church worshipped and gathered on the Lord's Day Sabbath on the eighth day, the first day of the week. This is new creation language. This is new Sabbath language, even here in the Levitical code of the Feast of Israel. So, uh, uh, all right. All right, so according to Leviticus uh, 23, verses 42 to 43... The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration designed by God to remember the provision of God in, uh, in the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Josephus said that when this was celebrated, it was uh, considered the holiest and greatest feast of the Jews. So everybody came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. That's going to be an important thing to remember next week when we're looking at Jesus' brothers and their encouragement for him to go show himself to the world. Uh, this, is a, this was the most celebrated feast in the life of the Jews at this time. Now, there, are, there, are, uh, there were certain ceremonies that were designed to remind the Jews about what took place during that wilderness wandering. Let me run through them quickly. First of all, when they gathered into Jerusalem, they had to dwell in booths, or they had to dwell in tents for seven days. Right? And that just signaled the fact that when they were wandering through the wilderness, what were they sleeping in? They were sleeping in tents. 
They didn't have any permanent dwelling places. They were nomadic. They were moving around according to the will of the Lord and the direction of the Lord. So whenever they would celebrate the feast, they would, uh, they would throw up these temporary huts, either on rooftops in Jerusalem or out in the regions around Jerusalem, and they would dwell in these huts for, uh, for seven days. Another part of the ceremony included uh, a water-pouring ceremony, where water would be poured out in the presence of all the people. And what that signified was uh, Yahweh providing water from the rock for his people in the wilderness, right? And then there was a third part to these ceremonies that were done, which was a torch-lighting ceremony. And do you know what that signified? Think about light and fire and wilderness wandering. The presence of the Lord among his people, right? And the the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. So all of these were commemorated at the Feast of Tabernacles through these various ceremonies. Now what we're going to find and what's really significant about this, I love this part, what we're going to see as we move through chapters 7 and 8 is that Jesus points to both of these ceremonial rituals, the pouring out of water and the torch lighting ceremony, he points to both of them and says that they find their fulfillment in him. Uh, (laughs) Now this means that there's not some future fulfillment of these feasts that is waiting to happen. Jesus is right here in John chapter 7 and in John chapter 8 telling us that in him these feasts find their fulfillment, these ceremonies, these rituals, these expressions of devotion and commemoration of the Lord's faithfulness, they all find their fulfillment in Jesus. So in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 38, when he's talking about water, come to me if you are thirsty and I will give you water. It will come up to, as, a, as, a, as a spring of water welling up inside of you unto eternal life. John says he was talking about the Spirit of God, which he would give to those who would believe in him after his glorification. So so that water pouring, that water from the rock that was provided by the Lord in the wilderness, Jesus says that's fulfilled in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the hearts of his people. Water flowing out of stone-cold hearts of ungodly sinners, regenerating them, making them new, filling them with the Spirit of God, giving them new life and joy and fellowship with the Lord, all because Jesus Christ, their rock, was struck in their place. We'll get to that. I want to preach that right now. And then you got John 8, 12, right? When Jesus looks at them and He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me will not walk in darkness, but he's going to have the light of life. Jesus is talking about that torch lighting ceremony. He's saying, listen, that is picturing something. That's picturing a reality about me that you've got to understand. The Lord walking with you, his presence going with you in that pillar of smoke and that pillar of fire all those years in the wilderness, all of that was pointing to me. And if you will walk after me, you too will have the light of life. You will not walk in darkness. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Lord's presence with his people. In other words, just fascinating things. And what what that does is that continues this idea of fulfillment theme. Fulfillment of the Old Testament. It it continues that theme through the Gospel of John. Remember in chapter 6, we saw Jesus was the fulfillment of what was symbolized and typified by the manna in the wilderness. Right? And we saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the good shepherd in Psalm 23, providing for the people through the, the multiplication of the bread and the fish. Well, in chapter 7, his giving of the Holy Spirit signals the fulfillment of the water being given to God's people in the wilderness. And in chapter 8, Jesus' presence among them is the fulfillment of what was typified by the light of God's presence going with the Israelites through the wilderness. And we're going to look into all that more as we go along. But the point is, Jesus is continuing to show through his teaching exactly what he said to these Jewish leaders in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. When he told them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. Here Jesus is just continuing to show how it is that the Old Testament points to him. Really important thing. All right, now sixth and final introductory matter, and we're done. Amen? Amen. As we walk through this chapter... The Holy Spirit will be confronting each one of us with a question. 
And how we answer that question has eternal ramifications. The question that will be asked of us, each one of us, as we walk through this entire section is, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? You remember in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 20, that question was asked of the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they responded back saying, well, some say a prophet, some say Elijah, some say, you know, one of these other people. And Jesus turns to them in verse 20 and says, but who do you say that I am? That's really what matters. Not what does everyone else say about Jesus and about who he is. But who do you say that Jesus is? In other words, have you come to know the truth about Jesus? Because what's ultimately going to matter when you stand before the Lord is what your confession about Jesus is and whether you truly believed it. Did you truly believe the reality of Jesus? Did you confess him for who he is and believe in him because of or uh, in light of who he is or not? So as we walk through this chapter, we're going to see this question come up in different ways. Was, Was he just a good man, a good teacher? Or was he a deceiver? Was he truly the one who was before Abraham, the I am? Or not? And as we see these various answers to who Jesus is, we're also going to be forced to ask ourselves, which group of people in this whole scene most accurately represents me? Am I the brothers who doubt in Jesus and challenge him to prove himself? Or am I among the Jews who think that he is a deceiver and who simply want to get rid of him? Am I among the people of Israel who are confused about who he is and aren't sure what to think about him? Or am I among his true disciples who recognize that he is the son of the living God, the great I am, who is worthy of my love and my worshipful obedience? Which group of people do we fit into? That'll be the question that the Spirit of God will be asking us as we move forward through these chapters. So let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we do that. Father, we do pray that you would continue to shepherd us through these chapters. There's so much here. There's so much that could be said, so much that could be dug into, Lord. And we can be overwhelmed by the sheer amount of revelation that's given to us in these chapters. I pray that you would guard and protect us from that. Lord, please let there be a simplicity and purity of devotion to you that is safeguarded and even encouraged as we walk through chapter 7 and 8 of the Gospel of John. Lord, let us answer this question about who Jesus is. Let us answer it well. We pray that your spirit would give us the insight that we need, would teach us the truth as we need to know it, or that you would walk with us and dwell among us and let us know that you are our God and that we are your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you hear a benediction from Jude 24 and 25? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence, the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. And may he have the glory from your life that he deserves. Amen.